so as we're studying the revelation of Jesus Christ, we need to also make sure we're keeping in our mind the gospel of Jesus Christ because this is what's being revealed in the gospel. Jesus has paid for Adam's sin that made the entire world guilty so that we are all born in sin. And Jesus, by his death on the cross, paid the penalty for our personal sins as well, our personal responsibility to have broken the covenant in Adam to save us from our deserved hell and death. And there are those who think it not fair that Adam would represent all of us and that we'd be condemned by him. But then remember that also due to the same covenantal legal um, way of looking at things, the way that God deals with his people, we are now able to be completely represented by Jesus Christ so that at no point is our personal meritorious sin which merits the wrath of God held against us as believers so that we are given the righteousness of Christ just as all mankind because regenerate who have been um, what's the word or, uh, not regenerate we, who have catechism question all men descending from him by ordinary generation <laughs> have inherited that sin they're represented by Jesus Christ but when a sinner turns from turns from their sin they are adopted into the family of Jesus Christ as God our father so that we have a new representative head we are now represented by Jesus Christ who has paid the penalty for our, all of our sin but this world is also under the influence of evil powers and we are engaged in spiritual warfare so the battle is not over the war has been fought the enemy has been dealt the death blow but there is still work for us to do in this life. At one point in scripture, the word telling us that God is trampling Satan under the church's feet. So that's what we pray happens even this morning and as we continue out. So this world is under the influence of evil powers and we're engaged in spiritual warfare. And that's why I want to start in Ephesians 6 to get us grounded into what it is that God is telling us about in Revelation. So Ephesians 6, familiar passage, but we need to be reminded of it. Verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So we're reminded that Ephesians is one of these epistles, one of these letters called the prison epistles. Do um, you think things are bad now? Paul locked up in prison for preaching the gospel. 
And from there, he also has the book of Ephesians, which many people, I mean, Philippians, which many people call the, the joy letter. And I believe he, he, he's teaching about joy because it's what he needed to hear as he's preaching the gospel to himself, locked up in chains because of the beast, the demonized state government attacking the church, seeking to destroy its leaders. And that's what we see in the book of Revelation. And then we'll turn, well, we won't turn, I've written it down. 1 Peter 3.22, we read this. Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Past tense. With ongoing consequences. This is not something that happens in the future. This is God, Jesus Christ, right hand of God, coronated in the heavens, in charge, in control, ruling as king of kings and lord of lords right now. The things that happen in this earth that are contrary to his prescribed will are happening according to his decreed will, but because he is allowing the iniquity of the unrighteous to be filled so that in the last day all sin will finally be dealt with thoroughly and sufficiently. And full, the full number of believers will come into the fold so that not one is lost. For Christ and God demand, desires that none should be lost, but that all should come to salvation. And in Matthew 28, 18, the great commission to the church, he again pronounces that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Again, we aren't waiting for Christ to rule in some way. He is ruling. And he tells us this because he is giving us the mission of going out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In the same way that God called Moses to go to Pharaoh to tell him to let my people go. And he says, who am I to do this? And he says to Moses, I am with you. So when we read the stories of Moses, who speaks to Aaron, who talks to Pharaoh, and says, let my people go, standing before the most impressive, powerful world power of their time, we're called to do the same because he is with us. We are not to proclaim these messages with any fear, but we're not to take the name of the Lord our God in vain so that we are to pronounce the gospel as we read it in the gospels, as we read it in the word of God, and not to add to it nor to take away from it. But the churches in Rome, as we can turn now to Revelation chapter 17, we know that the book of Revelation begins with this letter to these seven churches that were actual physical churches, but they're also representing the entire church of God as the number seven is a number of fullness. It was six days of creation. On the seventh day, God rests um, from his creative works and even from his works of judgment and pronouncing each day good as we await um, the the consummation day, the final day, the final judgment, and some since the eighth day where we see the resurrected Christ standing again and coming this time to judge sin and to bring in his people. But the struggling churches in Rome, which represent all the churches during this time between the crucifixion and ascension of Jesus Christ to the right hand of God to the time of his second coming, 
particularly in Rome, and particularly we know historically after the book of Revelation is written, that there is great persecution. There are churches already during the time of the writing of Revelation, and, and just to, to briefly mention it, there's a debate as to when was Revelation written. Was it before the fall of Rome? Was it after the fall of Rome? I've just really become convinced it doesn't matter um, I, it, it, because <laughs> either way, I just I cannot believe that this book of Revelation was written all about the destruction in Jerusalem. And it's like we know what this declares and it declares it for all of us but the dating of it doesn't really make that much of a difference because it was written to these seven churches but it was written for us that we are to be able to say what does the word of God have to say to us and these churches were struggling and they may not have felt as if God were indeed with them. They may not have felt as if they could stand before nations and kings and pharaohs and proclaim the word of God. Many of them indeed were saying, um, we're just going to kind of be like the culture. I don't want to be. It's as if Moses had told God, I got you, I'm going to do this. I'll go to Egypt. And then he does what he had done all the way up until that time, which was be raised by Pharaoh, look like an Egyptian, walk like an Egyptian, to be completely like them in his culture. But then one day God calls him by his spirit from the tree, from the burning bush, and says to him, take off your sandals, the place you walk is holy. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now go and therefore, and what he's telling him is, remember who you are. Do not be conformed by this world. And we know in the book of Hebrews, we're told that Moses spurning, desiring more the, uh, to be with Jesus Christ, forsook the riches of Egypt for the faith of Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to do. That we are not to have be weak-kneed people before the world. We are not to go forth with our own personal agendas. We are to go forth with God said for you to say this, say that, nothing more. Moses learns his lesson. He strikes a rock to make water come out of it when God told him to speak to the rock to make water come from it. And that causes him to see the promised land, but not to be able to enter into the promised land. So we have to be careful as we speak to our culture, as we should, as we speak to kingdoms, as we should, as we speak to one another, as we should, that what we speak is not taking God's name in vain. Far too many Christians today are all very militant on this issue or that issue or this thing or that thing in the name of Christ who they do not really follow. He is a very convenient ark to take out in front of the armies of God as a talisman to be able to say, look, Jesus is telling you this. We hear both sides do this. Satan's people as well speak the name of Jesus Christ. Be very careful. Satan comes also as an angel of light. But when uh, during the time of Samuel, the Israel goes forth, they're losing the battle. They go grab the ark, take it out in front so that they can win the battle. And what happens? The Philistines steal the ark. God will not be mocked. God is our God, our king. The king says when to go. The king says what to say. The king says what to do. Not just in your public activity, but also in your very internal, private 
life. I am your guide. I am in your heart. I am in your soul. I know God says more about you than you know about yourself. Therefore, cling to me. Trust in me. Follow me. So Christ gives these seven churches who are floundering, floundering, who are persecuted, who are weak, who are capitulating with culture, who are doing all these different things. He gives them a vision of his presence among them. And John shows them that they are candlesticks. They are lights. And he himself walks in the midst of them. And in this letter that is written to them, also to us, we see the totality of the church as candlesticks with Christ in our midst. In chapter 17, we see John is given a vision of the final judgment of this world's evil system and the demonic powers behind it. And Jesus defeated sin and Satan and all the powers aligned against God in the heavenlies on the cross. But the final blow has yet to be struck. The war is won, but Satan still prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Revelation 12.12 tells us that Satan has been um, cast down from heaven and thrown down to earth. And his great wrath, his wrath is great because he knows his time is short. And here we are engaged in spiritual warfare with an enemy whose wrath and power are great. But he can go no further than Christ allows. And Jesus is with his church. The gospel goes forth. Christ controls all things. And Satan is hindered. The Antichrist power at work in the world will be at work but in a restrained way until the one who now restrains it is taken out of the way, which we read in 2 Thessalonians 2.7. This brings us to Revelation 17, the judgment of the final days. Chapter 16, we saw the end of history. For what? The third time, I believe, in Revelation. So now, once again, John circles back to look at it again from another perspective to show us different aspects of this judgment that's coming. And this time he's showing us in, verse, in chapter 17 the judgment that's taking place. In the previous judgments, we've seen judgments on the ungodly and the things that are happening. And how uh, in, in one of the cycles of seven, we've seen the, the woman and the great red dragon. And the dragon tries to um, you know, consume the child that is born, but he can't do it. And it's Christ and he escapes into heaven. And then it just infuriates the dragon who then turns to the church. And ceases to, by all means possible, destroy the church. But he's bound. But he controls the beast. He is the great dragon. And we see in chapter 16, I'm sorry, 17, one of these seven angels just going to read through this again. This is the end of the bowl judgments. This is after the, you know, the, the, end of the, the end of the world. We're going to look at it a little bit different. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I'll show you the judgment of the great prostitute. Some translations say harlot. Who is seated on the waters. And then we see later that the waters represent all the nations and kingdoms of the land. This is a great harlot. It's all over the world. Uh, transtemporal was a good word I read. It's like across all time. With whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. Now this has to do with um, worshiping idols and things like this. And with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Dwellers on earth is a technical term in the book of Revelation for non-believers. Those who have received the, the mark of the beast. Those who do not worship the one true God. Those who are easily deceived. Those who have become drunk with 
the sexual immorality of the prostitute of Babylon, the great harlot. Verse 3, And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, claiming to be God. And we saw the scarlet beast mentioned previously and described in the same way in Revelation. It had seven heads and ten horns, and the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus Christ. Now the word martyrs is a Greek word, it means witnesses. It's not sure whether at the time of this writing it had come to mean those who had been put to death but it comes to get to be known as this, especially through the book of Revelation, because we see that these who are witnesses of Christ have now been put to death and shed their blood because of their witness. And therefore, when you hear the word martyrs, what the word means in the Greek is witness. So they have witnessed to something. When you're in court and you're, a witness is called forward, they testify to something. When we talk about our testimony, we're testifying to something. We're witnessing to something. Those witnesses of Jesus Christ were the targets of the beast, the dragon, and Satan so that they, their blood would be shed. And she's drunk with it, this great city of Babylon. She's in Paul John says, when I saw her, I marveled greatly. And there's lots of you know, commentary. Like, why do you, what does it mean he marveled greatly? Because in the next verse, the angel said to me, why do you marvel? So, okay, he's not supposed to be marveling. Or is he supposed to be marveling? What does it mean to marvel? It just means thalmatso is this word. It's just, marvel is a pretty good word, except we've used it for comic books now, and it kind of gets weird meanings. But it just means to, to look at something with an amazed astonishment, which is why it's called Marvel Comics. You know, it's this amazed astonishment. And so when John is told, I'm going to show you the judgment of the great city Babylon, and he sees this beautiful woman. And he's like riding on this beast with this golden cup full of abominations in the blood of the saints. I, I think what he's saying here is she doesn't appear to be judged. She's triumphantly going throughout the whole world. Look what's happening. The blood of my people. My blood. Thank God for Christ's blood shed for us. But what, what is this? And the angel said, why do you marvel? I tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw. It's kind of interesting. He goes on and talks about the beast now. I'll tell you the mystery of the woman. Let me tell you about the beast. It's like, oh, what about the woman? What we're going to see is she's riding on this beast. So it appears as if she's in control. It appears as if she's being carried along by all these powers of the earth, state, demonized state power, God, Satan using all the powers of this world to accomplish his purposes so that all the people of the world end up worshiping him through this means of this woman and this beast so that um, this huge juxtaposition, this huge contrast between the harlot Babylon and the bride of Christ. She looks beautiful on the outside, but inside her cup is full of, 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 of abominations and blasphemies. But the bride of Christ, and she's also a prostitute. The, 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 
the harlot. She's, she's a harlot. She's a prostitute. And, and she's full of these things. And the bride of Christ is holy and chaste and good and pure. These are the two different women that God calls out for us to see and to say, don't follow the harlot Babylon. Follow and become the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. But then verse 8, we're going to talk about the beast because the beast is controlled not by the woman because the world thinks it controls governments until government turns on the people, which we'll see next week in the book of Revelations. We see um, the dragon and the beast turn on the woman who's just, uh, in my mind, I just picture it like she's on this big beast and she's just having a good old time. It's like these people that go through town in a, um, in a, in a big Cadillac or a big, what do you call those big old giant cars you rent when you go to prom? Limousine. Say, I don't know about such things. I'm poor farm boy. And uh, there's a big limousine, and, he's, and they're hanging out the rooftop. What do you call those things? Y'all too rich. Sunroofs, they had the sunroofs, they had the, and they're, ooh, and they're singing that song Friday or whatever it is. They just go on, they got their hands up, and everybody's waving at them. And it's like, <laughs> that's this harlot that she's going around on this beast, and she just thinks it's great because she's controlling. And these are the world, the people of the world, those marked with the beast, the earth dwellers, they're just having a time of it. And they're using government to control. They're using government to say, God has no control over me. This is what's right. This is what's true. I can do what I want. I have the power. I have the ability. And it's just like, have, laugh it up. Because sooner or later, as we've even been able to see historically, these governments, this beast turns on these people. And then it's too late. You're in the gulag. You're in the prison. You're in the dungeon. You're you're. you're and even, I mean, read the Gulag Archipelago. It's really amazing. People who gave their lives to the beast and then are turned on by the beast and cast into prison by the beast, tortured by the beast, still defend the beast because they can't let it go. Others wake up, but some don't. That the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit so this rising from the bottomless pit, this abyss, it's called in Greek, is from elsewhere in Scripture. We saw that he's cast down, this angel is cast down from heaven, and he has the keys to the bottomless pit, and he unleashes these great powers from the bottomless pit, and these scorpions and everything, they come out, and they're torturing people. It's an image of the last day as the Antichrist power finally rises to great power, this just before the second coming of Christ, where there's this second coming, and there's this final judgment that, that occurs and we see this description that's given to us of Jesus, actually, in the beginning of, of Revelations, in Revelation 1 and chapter 4. Christ is described as the one who is, and the one who was, and the one who is to come. So if you note carefully in this description, you'll see that he, <clears throat> the beast that was, Jesus' first one is that he is. And then now it says he is not this beast, but that he is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. So this is what we can't miss. 
that when the beast rises, and we're going to see what he's not talking about, not just individual powers that arise over time, though he does talk about that, and we've seen this over history too, as we see this demonic antichrist power rise, leaders being given these supernatural evil powers to be able to do things and lead people. I mean, look at the look at Hitler, Stalin, Mao, uh, people in, in North Korea now, people in China, these people who give this godlike devotion to leaders. And you wonder, wow, how does that happen? It's because this these are spiritual matters. These are Satan behind these powers that are seeking to rule their people in the way that they do. But he is going to rise to go to destruction, whereas Christ rose and is seated at the right hand of God. And the dwellers on earth, remember, technical term for the non-believers, the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. However, as believers, our names have been written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world. There's the gospel. Great, wonderful. We're protected. We're saved from this. You're not saved from. Sometimes I forget children in here. You're not saved from torture. You're not saved from poverty. You're not saved from hardship. You're not saved from living in a hut somewhere. You're not saved from from extreme negative circumstances. You're not saved from those things. In fact, those things may very well be your salvation. And sometimes a church gets in the way and keeps somebody from... We've had the experience, even in our church, trying to help somebody and help somebody and help somebody. And we came to a determination that if God is trying to throw somebody in the ditch, you better let him go or you're going to end up in the ditch too. Because sometimes, as Malcolm has quoted from somebody, it's like riches can be a soft curse on people. And so be very, very careful. If you come to God for money, God is not your God. Money is. The prosperity gospel is from hell. Run from churches that teach it. It's sad, but it's true because it perverts the gospel. And the gospel is about a cross. There is no crossless kingdom. But in Christ, we are raised with him to new life. So that in this life, if we trust in God in this life only... The prosperity gospel would say, hey, don't worry about it. It's been a great ride. It's been a great ride. No, it hadn't. You're to be most pitied. Most pitied. We're written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. And those people whose names were not written in the book of life, they marvel. There's that word again. <laughs> Why are you marveling, John? You're not one of these people to be marveling. Why are you looking at the beast like that? You're looking at the beast like these people do. They marvel to see the beast. Why do they marvel to see the beast? Because it was and it is not and it is to come. They think it's God. They're setting it up to be God. They don't want a God that calls them to holiness. Do you want a God that calls you to holiness? Really? No, you don't. You want a God that says you can have everything you want. Just worship me. And what gospel is that? Satan's gospel vote for me and I'll set you free. That's all it is. Jesus says, I'll set you free. I'll heal your diseases. All these things. But you have to recognize what is it that you want. Where is your heart set? Is your heart set on God? Do you love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and then your neighbor is yourself? Or do you love this world and its riches and the things you can give you? Because if that's what you believe, then watch out. Satan comes as an angel of light and he'll dish out the prizes like Oprah at the show. 
There's one for you, one for you, one for you. All you got to do is follow me. Well, I will follow you, but I'm going to call you Christ. Ham's on time. Be careful. The question to ask is, am I, are you following Christ? Truly. Or are you just after worldly things and baptizing it with the name of Christ? Because that's taking his name in vain. And he says, they marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. See this false religion kind of thing. It's not Jesus at all who is, was, and is to come. <clears throat> he even says he is not. It's just such a strange thing. It's like, does that mean he's not here at all? Well, it means a couple things. One is Satan is currently bound. Um, he, Dr. Kelly would say, but he's on a long leash. He's got lots of minions. He's still, uh, there will be a, a, a last day when all these things are just let loose for their destruction, which is what we're seeing here. And he says, so how are we supposed to reason with all this? In verse 9, this calls for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated, and there are seven kings, five of whom have fallen, and one is from the other and has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. And as for the beast that was and is not, it's an eighth, but belongs to the seventh and goes to destruction. The ten horns you saw are the ten kings who have yet to receive royal power, but they're about to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. What? I read that too fast. We have to take our time with it. It's not going to help a whole lot to take your time with it. One of the things that I've read about these particular verses, a quote that I like is, these are some of the most difficult verses to translate, to interpret in the Bible. And so your first thought can be, then we ought not even mess with it. Let's just skip over these because there's so much disagreement over what they mean. We might as well you know, not get into these type arguments and just see what else the Bible might have to say to us. But... I think that's exactly what Satan would, would want us to do, and that's certainly not what our God would want us to do. But we see that there is a way to interpret these things, and it is, it requires wisdom. Verse 9, this calls for a mind with wisdom. <clears throat> and I'm, this isn't my personal, and this is my personal belief, but I'm not the only, this isn't, um, peculiar just to me this isn't John just going out there and just coming up with some weird stuff up there I mean this is there. I'm, lots of people agree <laughs> with me on this and, and follow it and it just makes sense where do you get wisdom? what is wisdom? fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom I was watching Star Trek Next Generation last night it's one of those things I put on in the backgrounds I've seen it so many times I don't have to pay attention to it <laughs> but it just makes some background noise but data said, if you know anything about it, the, the android who wants to be a, a human, he says, um, we, know, we know what the beginning of wisdom is. And I thought, oh. And he says, it is to admit that we know nothing. I was like, oh, well, for the non-believer, agnosticism, ignorance is a good place to start, possibly. But the beginning of wisdom, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom is different than mere knowledge. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You want to interpret this? Start with the fear of the Lord. You want to interpret this properly? Do it spiritually. You want to interpret this properly? Do it in a way that the non-believers aren't going to be able to do. What's that mean? I've got to have the Holy Spirit give me special revelation? He gave you special revelation right there in the Bible. So what you've got to do is say, what does 7 mean? What does 5 mean? What does 10 mean? What's an 8th mean? You have to do these things. How does the Bible, how does revelation use them? And really, if you don't try to figure out these individual details and say, oh, who are these 7? Okay, well, there we're um, there were emperors, and then we've got this king and that king. That means we're going to get to another. The book of Revelation is not giving you names as who's going to be president, who's going to be king, or, or any of these things. What the book of Revelation is saying is there's going to, there is a, there is a, 
a principle at work in the world where Satan is trying to destroy the church and he uses men, women, children, governments, powers, allurements, all these things to be able to grab people out of the one true way, the, the straight and narrow path to all these other things, either by coercion or by allurements. And we all know what it's like for all of them. So if you do that, seven heads or seven mountains, seven's a number of completion. It just means kingdoms and powers. There's a complete number of them. Um, that's what we know this beast represents. We've seen that before. And the woman is seated on it. Verse 10, there are also seven kings. Okay, there's a complete number of kings. Five of whom have fallen. One is. Okay, so there, we're, we're, we're not to a complete number of these things yet. But there is a power at work in the world now. What number? Six. And the mark of the beast. Calculate his number. Six, six, six. It's not seven. He's not a complete number. He's not there yet. He wants to arise and aspire to the perfect number of seven, but he can't. One has fallen, the other is, is but there is one that is yet to come. And when he does, he must remain only a little while. This is number seven. And his time is short, we're told, of Satan. So there's this last one coming who's going to have great power. And as for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth. But it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. We could spend a long time discussing and, and talking about all this. But basically, this eighth is an interesting thing because God created all things in the space of six days. He rests on the seventh day. And then Christ comes, and he... Um, dies and is entombed for seven days and then I'm sorry for three days and three nights and then when he rises it is on which day of the week first day of the week which is the eighth day he rises the day after the seventh day he rises on the eighth day this day of completion this day of moving forward this day of running now into God's eternal rest, what we enter into with Christ. So Satan, desiring to be God, says he desires to be this eighth, to be this super completed seven kings, but over all these kings, all the kingdoms of the world can be yours if you just follow me, Satan said to Christ. And Jesus says, <laughs> won't take a kingdom without a cross because all the kingdoms of this world do belong to me. And so... The eighth cannot be obtained by Satan. This completion, this final victory over all these things, being of the seven, meaning he's of similar kind, but also over as the Babylon prostitute was the mother of all prostitutes. This power is the mother of all powers, but it goes to destruction. So just in closing, Klein, Meredith Klein writes, who's a guy? I'm sorry, his name's Meredith. I was like, well, who's she? You know, there's this a guy's name too, just like Bear. The beast is an eighth head, the climax of the seven heads, but it fails to bring the series of eight to its conclusion. It does not gain the heights of the Harmageddon, the the holy mountain of assembly. Quite the opposite, it descends into perdition. Christ, however, is the true eighth figure, and his resurrection day is celebrated by the assembly of the church and betokens the consummate perfecting of the perfect worshipful place of God. And in 8.11, sorry, it's in, in verse, the beast here, in verse 11, the beast goes to destruction. And we see it over and over again in history. It arises and arises, a type of resurrection into the world, the powers of the world, 
government and these powers can seem more powerful than the church. And to our shame, sometimes we see ourselves in this same light. But Jesus said in the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The final rise of the beast is to his own destruction, is what the Bible tells us. So look around. Totalitarianism is on the rise again. And so soon after the lessons of World War I and II. So soon. The final totally antichrist controlled power, an eighth, who is one of the seven. In other words, a worldly kingdom like the seven, but like the harlot of Babylon, the power behind the powers. Dr. Kelly writes, how do you know when a state is demonic? He says, when it seeks to replace God with itself and to create its own values instead of getting them from the word of God. And then today, even in our own country, even those with, within Christ's church question whether the Bible has any role in determining the proper role for government or laws. So wake up. The totalitarian beast is growing, and if the church doesn't see it, who will? And if others do, violence will only increase. Hatred will grow. Freedom will be lost. And what's the opposite of freedom? Slavery, Pharaoh, Egypt. What's the solution? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. We are trained to see the needs of people, of our neighbor. We look around and we see need in the form of hunger, homelessness, disease. But human flourishing is more than just having our physical needs met. Freedom, liberty to pursue truth, faith to follow God, to raise families as we see fit, to provide for our families, our needy neighbors, to worship as we see fit. Will we be willing to stand and say, let my people go when Pharaoh has taken control of even the church? When he holds the church in slavery. Too many so-called Christians today call for revolution without devotion to Christ. Christ is king. To him our obedience belongs. We are to trust in him alone for physical needs, daily bread, for salvation, forgive us our debts. But we must not be mesmerized by the protection and power of government or the allurement of riches and pleasure. In Christ are all the promises of God, yes and amen. Trust in him and speak truth. Preach the gospel to the world. Believe the gospel. Jesus is our only hope. We have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We have his presence. He shows us this and he gives us this in the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father God, we do pray for eyes to see, ears to hear, that our truth will not just be merely um, kept within the confines and walls of a church or a gathering of people, but it be proclaimed to all the world that there is a king on the throne. His name is Jesus Christ, and all must bow the knee and submit to him. Kings must kiss the ring lest they be destroyed in the way, and he laughs in derision over them. But Lord, help us also to know that our kingdom is not of this world. We do not fight with the weapons of this world. The weapons of our warfare are powerful to bring down strongholds, but they are spiritual. You are in control. You are powerful. You are almighty. Help us to stand up for the weak. 
help us to provide for the needy, help us to see what our calling is today, and help us to fulfill it by your grace, for you have promised to be with us, even as a beast goes out with a harlot riding upon its back. We are the bride of Christ. Our future is secure. Help us to live in that truth, and we pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.